The attorney-client privilege protects confidential communications between a lawyer and client made for the purpose of seeking legal advice. Known as the oldest of privileges for confidential communications, courts have recognized the attorney-client privilege as a hallmark of Anglo-American jurisprudence for more than 400 years. According to the Supreme Court in Upjohn v. United States, the privilege is designed to encourage clients to make full disclosure to their attorneys in order to promote the observance of the law and the administration of justice. If the law recognizes a zone of privacy between lawyers and clients, clients will be more candid and forthright during their discussions, and the lawyers will in turn provide wise counsel on how to comply with the law. Consistent with this reasoning, and given the many increasingly regulated aspects of society and business, many courts and commentators believe the attorney-client privilege should be afforded broad and robust protections. However, the attorney-client privilege has not been without its detractors. Jeremy Bentham, an 18th century philosopher and jurist, argued that the privilege only benefits the guilty. In Rationale on Judicial Evidence, Bentham wrote the following, but if such confidence when reposed is permitted to be violated, the consequence will be that no such confidence will be reposed. Not reposed? Well, and if it be not, wherein will consist the mischief? The man by the supposition is guilty. If not, by the supposition there is nothing to betray. Let the law advisor say everything he has heard, everything he can have heard from his client. The client cannot have anything to fear from it that it will too often happen that in the case supposed no confidence will be reposed is natural enough. What then will be the consequence? That a guilty person will not in general be able to derive quite so much assistance from his law advisor in the way of concerting a false defense as he may do at present? From this perspective, the attorney-client privilege goes against the entire purpose of the fact-finding process, the pursuit of truth. When dubious or dirty business is concealed, the pursuit of truth is in jeopardy. Courts have recognized this tension between disclosure and confidentiality, recognizing that the privilege acts as an exception from the general presumption in favor of disclosure. Courts recognize that, quote, the attorney-client privilege must be strictly confined within the narrowest possible limits consistent with the logic of its principle. In that vein, communications that are not necessary for legal advice are not protected, like the mere giving or soliciting of business advice. Similarly, assistance with tax return preparation, even when provided by lawyers, is not generally considered privileged. But what happens when the communication in question has dual purposes? What if the communication includes both tax law advice as well as the non-privileged procedural aspects of a tax return preparation. This is the issue in a case out of the Central District of California involving a law firm held in civil contempt for refusing to turn over certain client documents. In response to a subpoena investigating the firm's client, the law firm turned over thousands of documents regarding various tax issues related to the client's expatriation, and others were produced in redacted form. However, the trial court ordered the production of certain other dual-purpose documents, those that covered both legal advice and non-legal tax issues, explaining 
that although tax advice played a role in certain of these communications, the primary purpose was tax return preparation. Therefore, they were not protected by privilege. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed, and the Supreme Court granted certiorari to review the case. In a case attracting widespread attention in the legal and business worlds, the issue is one that strikes at the heart of the justice system, tension between disclosure and confidentiality. This is Enri Grand Jury. Welcome to Legal Judgments, where we tackle litigation and trial strategy by analyzing and talking about real legal cases. I'm Bob Stetson, a Boston-based trial lawyer at Bernkoff. Today, we're discussing a case that addresses the scope and extent of a hallmark of the legal profession, the attorney-client privilege. With me is MC Sungaila, a renowned appellate attorney and host of the incredibly successful podcast, The Porsche Project featuring prominent women in the law discussing their career paths. MC filed an amicus brief in the case on behalf of the Federation of Defense and Corporate Counsel. The brief favored the law firm's interpretation of the attorney-client privilege. Welcome, MC. Thank you so much for joining. Thanks, Bob, for having me. I appreciate it. So oral arguments in this case only occurred a couple of days ago, so we're probably not going to have a decision by air date from the Supreme Court. But if I could summarize what I think the issue is, it's this, whether in order to be privileged, a dual purpose communication must have as its primary purpose, the most important purpose, legal advice. Or if on the other hand, whether some lower threshold is going to satisfy that standard. If the legal advice, for instance, is only a significant purpose, primary purpose test versus significant purpose test. And you have all of these amicus briefs lining up, you know, business organizations, trade groups, they have all lined up. In fact, I'm not sure there was a single amicus brief in favor of the government's position. No, 13 in support of the law firm and zero lined up with the government's position. Nobody wants the government to uh, look into their taxes. So you have all of these business groups, trade organizations, they've all supported this broader conception of the attorney-client privilege. And one of the reasons they're supporting that is they're basically saying, and your brief, I thought, did a fantastic job on this, clarity and predictability. In order to have a privilege like this, clients and lawyers need to understand how it works, what communications are going to be protected. But what I want to do is I want to go back to the principle that I mentioned in my opening, that because the attorney-client privilege is an exception to the presumption in favor of disclosure, that it should be narrowly tailored to the logic underlying the privilege itself. And so if the purpose of this privilege is to promote candor, you know, free-flowing communication between lawyer and client, how is that served 
by this significant purpose test. So I guess my point is this, if the disclosure or the communication is going to be made for a business purpose, it's going to be made, whether it's to a lawyer or a business advisor. And so it's not going to be privileged in that situation. And if that's correct, as a matter of logic, how does this broad formulation actually serve to protect candor and communications with lawyer and client? Put differently, isn't this just a stalking horse to protect more and more communications from disclosure? Yeah, I mean, certainly that idea, that concept is kind of in the background, right? And it came up at oral argument. If you just put a lawyer in the room or CC a lawyer on the email chain, it's not enough, you know, to make it protected. And everybody had argument, and I think we can all agree that you can't just create a privilege where there really is no legal advice going on in the communications. But the ABA brief pointed this out, and, and certainly you mentioned about the clarity question. Two things. First, if you're the client and you're conveying information to your lawyer, if you're uncertain about which kind of things might be protected or you might be reticent to give information that is relevant to the legal assessment, but you're not a lawyer, so you don't know that, but you're still being reticent about telling your lawyer certain things. So that affects the quality of legal advice, you know, at the end of the day. And that came up at argument too. There may be a lot of things that aren't strictly legal, but they're relevant to a legal analysis. And sometimes I think in the corporate context too, we have clients, especially internally, in-house counsel, a lot of the briefs talk about that, which is people, the client, the in-house, the people, the business people in the business do not always know when they have a legal question. They might think, I better ask the lawyer because there might be some law about this. But if you ask them what their primary purpose was in talking to the lawyer, they might say something totally different. Oh, I wanted to get this marketing thing out. I wanted to do something else. And so as the ABA brief pointed out, when you start getting into what the client's mindset is and what their intent is, which you have to get a lot more granular for the test that the government is asking, then just by doing that in itself, you start undermining the privilege. And you have to be very cautious about doing that as well. And so one of the difficulties, I think, in assessing this case, you know, as, as an outsider is that a lot of these documents, or maybe all of these documents have been sealed. You can't see so them. Yeah. You can't see them. So it's hard to see it. It's going to be very hard to tell from the decision precisely what kind of communications, you know, beyond the theories that we've been talking about today, what kind of communications are being affected. So I guess my next question to you is, can you make it more concrete, you know, for the listeners and quite frankly, for myself by providing, you know, what's the type of a situation, perhaps, you know, you mentioned in-house legal counsel, what's the type of a situation or the type of communication that in-house legal sees on a regularly common type basis that's going to be impacted by the difference between the primary purpose test versus the significant purpose test. Yeah, I mean, I could think of one sort of broad brush way of thinking about it, which is more and more in-house counsel in particular, and we help, we as outside counsel who are truly trusted advisors, are involved in, in a lot of going forward strategy for the company. So whether they're expanding products or expanding, you know, into an area where there's new regulations and they want to figure out how they deal with that so that... There's a mixture, there's going to be some kind of dual purpose to that. Both, can you give me some pure 
help me with your legal, critical thinking analysis that you have after years of schooling? Can you help me work through these practical business questions while at the same time alerting me to, hey, you're going to run into a regulatory minefield and you need to craft your new product line or your new business in a way that is cognizant of those legal requirements or even where they might be going. Maybe we don't know there's a regulation yet, but there might be. And so we don't want to create a whole new part of the business that is going to, you know, die in the field of regulation. So you want all of that together. And there's truly a, a dual purpose kind of communicating. And so I take it from kind of that clarity and predictability standpoint, if you start trying to set out or identify a percentage, you know, what percentage of that communication was devoted to a business purpose as opposed to a legal purpose, you're going to just drive yourself crazy. I mean, how are judges going to do this? How are lawyers going to do this? And more importantly, how are clients going to figure that out in advance? And if you've got all that uncertainty, you know, where is the privilege? What is it worth? Is that kind of the point? Yeah. And also, if you are doing a searching test to find out whether something's privileged, haven't you, to some extent, already undermined or violated the privilege? If you find out, oh, it's privileged. Oh, never mind. We ignore all that stuff we looked into to figure out whether it was privileged. That percentage part definitely came up at argument too. Justice Gorsuch asked the, the government lawyer, the Solicitor General assistant, well, is it 60, 40? Like what percentage of legal over business do you need for your test? And it ended up, you know, getting to the point where Justice Gorsuch said, wait a minute, are we actually talking about the same test? It's sounding like a dichotomy. It sounds like in, in the framing, but as you're applying it, you're kind of agreeing with what I'm saying, which would be consistent with what the law firm is saying. So how does this actually work? And I, I think that really was something that came up at argument. Argument was so freewheeling. And so like, I think we think about, especially as appellate lawyers, we think, does argument really matter? Like, Yes, I think it really mattered in this case because there did appear to be shifting positions or at least is where the, both the government and the law firms seemed to intersect. And that seemed to, you know, both puzzle the members of the court and also cause them to look at things a little differently. So it's definitely an interesting oral argument. So I want to stay with that clarity and predictability idea for a second. In preparing for the interview today, I, I spent a fair amount of time sort of looking into the history of the attorney-client privilege. You know, why was it recognized in the first place? As best as I could figure out, you know, from secondary authorities, some early American cases, it looked to me like it was primarily associated with kind of a practical litigation purpose. Essentially, if you're acting as a lawyer, you cannot simultaneously act yeah. as a witness, which of course makes sense. And, you know, as a lawyer, as lawyers, there are some safeguards there. We have a duty of candor to the court. You know, we, you know, we cannot suborn perjury, what have you. So there are some guardrails, so to speak. But under this litigation, non-litigation formulation, the privilege could potentially be broader, in a sense, than the uh, significant or primary purpose test in the sense that it covers business decisions. It covers you know, yeah. a lot of different things. I saw some courts that where it covered outright fraud, some of these early cases, but it's maybe narrower in the sense that 
Maybe if you're a transactional lawyer involved in a contract negotiation, maybe those discussions are not all privileged. So whatever the early conception of it, the courts in the latter half of the 19th century clearly said no. It's broader than this litigation, non-litigation uh, formulation. But I'm wondering from this clarity and predictability standpoint, if it wouldn't be easier to just cut it off at litigation, non-litigation, we as attorneys, we have the work product rule, which, you know, it seems easy enough to understand. So I, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on this issue or what I would characterize as the somewhat murky origins of the privilege and how that should or should not play into this analysis. Yeah, I mean, I think it, to your point earlier, it's definitely expanded, you know, beyond that in the modern era. But there are guardrails, as you mentioned, and that came up at argument and was mentioned in the briefing as well. You know, there's still you still have to make the showing that this material that you say is privilege, you know, it is privilege. You have to invoke the privilege. It's your burden to make the showing. And of course, crime fraud, all of the other things that you mentioned are guardrails as well. So all of those exist. And then you get to this question, what is the test, you know, when we're looking at it? So I don't think it's the only set of guardrails or limitations to the privilege, but it is at the core of the privilege question. And that's where I think people get concerned. I think that um, Justice Kagan mentioned some of the things that you raised, the concern that assuming that everyone is operating in good faith and isn't just, you know, putting a lawyer in the room to try and gain a privilege over something that has nothing to do with legal advice there are a lot of mixed things, dual purpose things that happen. And it's almost like Justice Kagan was pointing to that saying, well, maybe it's too easy to have things be privileged. And we're concerned about that too, you know, too much because we want transparency. You know, we want to be able to discover things and have our courts work in a way that they're operating with as much, uh, you know, information and evidence as possible. And I don't know that she was the only justice necessarily that expressed some skepticism to significant purpose test. But I will say, I have a suspicion that since Justice Kavanaugh, while he was on the DC circuit, essentially authored the significant purpose test that he'll be in favor of it. Kagan, you mentioned, you know, the line that I remember is that she said to the government lawyer, essentially, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And you yeah, know, so no, but that's I, a really I, interesting I, thing. You know, that's so interesting too, because I've seen, you know, obviously it's a great line and she's such a, you know, she's such a great writer and a pithy, you know, speaker as well. So people really caught on to that. But I think the question here was, well, okay, we have a conflict. It's an important question, but there's also a conflict in at least the federal case laws to what the standard should be. So, you know, it is kind of broke or they wouldn't have taken cert. So there's that. But her reference to that had to do with state courts. So we're talking about a, you know, slim set of cases to which this would particularly apply. But of course, there's an influential aspect to whatever the U.S. Supreme Court would say about this flowing down to state courts. But her reference there, I think, was to most state courts seem to have this, you know, more of a primary purpose type test. And so do we want to upset that apple cart or just cause this whole, you know, downstream effect in multiple jurisdictions if we adopt something a little bit broader. And that's kind of what she was referring to. But it makes it sound like when you just take this sound bite, like some of the reporters have, makes it sound like, oh, everything's against you and you're asking for this huge sea change. I was like, well, 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of the states have that, but just as Kavanaugh pointed out, because he knows this well, because he wrote the D.C. Circuit opinion you, you mentioned, he's like, yeah, you know, a lot of those courts talk about a primary purpose test, but what they actually do when they apply it is more of the test that the law firm's urging. So if you actually dig into the cases, they assert one test and then, you know, describe it and apply it in a way that is not that. So that's kind of interesting. It might be a little misguided to say they all go that way when in reality they apply the test differently. So it's a really interesting argument for that reason as well. So there's a lot of debate about, you know, what this standard actually is currently. Even when they're saying that, it's almost like some of the viewpoints that came up at oral arguments is that even some courts that use the primary purpose test aren't really doing that. They're really right. doing the significant purpose right. test. And that sort of leads me to think that there's a chance here that the Ninth Circuit, and for the reasons that you just pointed out, that, you know, we're talking about common law. We're not talking about a Supreme Court that's going to reverse, you know, hundreds of years of precedent in every single state or jurisdiction. This really does apply from a precedential standpoint anyway, in a fairly limited way. So it wouldn't surprise me at all based on what I heard at the oral arguments, to see the decision affirmed with some kind of minimalist type reasoning. But, you know, I'm, I'm yeah, curious. Yeah, that, that was a suggestion that Justice Barrett made. You can see the two different camps on the court, right? You've got Roberts, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh saying, hey, we want a practical test. We're looking to what the amicus briefs are telling us, and we practice law. So we want a test that's workable, that doesn't put too much pressure and work, extra work on trial judges as well. And we're paying attention to that combined with, we don't really think that the single primary purpose test is how it's applied. And that actually happened at argument where the two sides ended up converging on how they would actually apply a test. So it was almost in real time, you could see that happening as well. But on the other hand, you had some very strong counter statements from Justice Jackson, Justice Kagan, Justice Sotomayor, and then Justice Barrett as well. But she offered what you're suggesting partway through the argument. What if we kept this test, this single primary purpose test, but we didn't say anything else? We didn't explain it. We didn't give anything about how it should be particularly applied in a case. And that would mean that all of the case law that exists would you know, you'd have to look to existing case law to interpret it. And if some of those cases in different jurisdictions actually apply the test a little bit more loosely, then that's how you would apply it. She seemed to kind of looking for a bridge, you know, between the different members of the court and how they would feel comfortable. So I caught it the same way, Bob, as being, you know, that's a potential, hey, maybe we can all come together around this. So let's shift gears for a minute and Tell me about how you got involved in this case and how you went, you know, into the assignment, you know, preparing it. I know from our communications that you had a very tight time frame to get this prepared and filed. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, amicus briefs are just famous for being short-term, short-fuse projects usually because the time frame is short once you know that, you know, a case has been granted or you know we're going to the merits on something and then having the organizations decide that it's important for them to weigh in and then to make sure that whatever they would say wouldn't repeat the briefs that are already there. And so that's always the question. And here where you have, you know, a few strong briefs of the cert stage, but then a dozen briefs already from a lot of great organizations from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the ABA to 
California lawyers, tax lawyers, just a whole range of people. So when FDCC wanted to participate, largely at the behest, I would say a lot of the bar associations from in-house counsel who are deeply concerned about how this would apply to their situation. And they most often have the dual communications was, what can we add? You know, can we add something? If we're just repeating what people are saying in other briefs, we really shouldn't file a separate brief. You know, we should join with somebody else. And so I, I looked at that coverage that the briefs had so far and what I knew was coming. And what I hadn't seen was this practical, modern era kind of argument, which is how we do communications, how even particularly in-house, through all of these informal means, but electronic means, which means you're going to have a trail of a lot more stuff that could potentially be produced. And that's also enhanced by working remotely or hybrid after the pandemic and during the pandemic. And combined with the new emerging role of the best in-house counsel, which is really business advisors, trusted business advisors and strategy advisors combined with legal advice. And all of those trends together made this way more communications that could be potentially subject to this, either because there are just more of them that are documented or because there's going to be more that are dual and that you need a workable test for that. And one of the things that I had noticed in preparing the brief was that, you know, some of the best law firms are trying to provide advice in an era of uncertainty to their clients. And a lot of these alerts and bulletins and articles Their suggestions were things that I just thought were not realistic. Like if you're if you're on an email chain where there's some business advice happening and other things, other people in the company, and then they ask for your legal advice. The suggestion often is that you start a new email chain and you just talk about legal stuff in that. And I thought, how realistic is that? And that actually came up at argument too. The government said, well, you could just do a separate chain. I'm like, what world are you in? Who is going to do that? And everybody else who's on the other chain is going to be like, what? Why did we switch to this new one? It's just, to me, that told me this is not a pragmatic, workable test. The fact that people are rendering that kind of advice, you know, in all honesty, to their clients. Well, and I think you pointed out a very valuable fact, which supports that because of all the volume of communications between lawyers involving lawyers in this modern era, email, You know, I know you mentioned Slack and some other forms of communications. That may be the reason why we have to update this standard. You know, the standard was from the old world of communication. You sit down with a lawyer, you physically go to his office. Of course, you're going to be talking about legal advice. It's sort of obvious in that sense. Mm -hmm. But it's not so obvious when you've got an email chain, you got the lawyer involved. Everybody wants to hear what the lawyer has to say. You're throwing out ideas. So I think it was a very, very a good point. It's one I wish that was brought up a little bit more at the oral argument. The one yeah, I, I recall, it it, they like... were all sitting around at a table. <laughs> yeah, no, it, made me, it, it really made you realize like, wow, that there's a reason they call that the ivory tower, huh? Because you're like, wow, they're just right. not dealing with this anymore. Except for, like I mentioned, Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Gorsuch. And Justice Kavanaugh, they still have some memory, you know, from their time when they were doing this kind of work. And they're like, hey, that that doesn't seem practical, you know. So I want to switch gears one last time. And I want to ask you about the Porsche project. So first of all, I'm in awe of the volume of episodes and the quality of the episodes that you have. You've got all the top women in the field. 
trial lawyers, appellate lawyers, judges, academics. It's an incredible show. And as I said to you before, this show, while I may not be your target audience, I enjoy all manner of lawyer origin stories. And I've listened to several of them already. Highly recommend this to all the lawyers listening today. But as someone who's only able to churn out about 10 episodes of a podcast per year, how on earth do you find the time and also the interview subjects to produce the amount and quality of podcasts that you do? Yeah, we launched it and I launched it in February 2022 and we're at episode 89 as of today. Unbelievable. Yeah. And I've, I've already, I have interviews produced and like through next summer already. So, yeah, I mean, it's it started, I had no idea it was going to be like that either, Bob. It's just kind of like, oh, okay. And when judges and justices call you and say, we'd like to be on your podcast, your correct answer, as it always is to a judge, is why, yes, of course, Your Honor. (laughs) So So just a follow-up question, why did you decide to start the Porsche Project? And have you been able to accomplish any of those goals so far? Yeah, I hope so. I started it, actually, the idea started several years ago when I had started working on on a book interviewing women appellate judges around the country. Because as an appellate lawyer, I had noticed, somewhat sadly, that there weren't as many women in the appellate bench as I would have thought at this point. About 150 when you're talking between state courts and federal courts. That's not a lot around the entire country. So I thought, well, what if I highlight these women and their accomplishments and how they got to the bench and maybe inspire others to apply. If you don't apply, there can't be more women on the bench. And I knew from my friends who had become judges that many of them were encouraged by individuals to do it, or they may not have thought they were as qualified as needed to become a judge, but others saw that they were and tapped them on the shoulder and recommended they apply. So I kind of thought that this would be a way to tap others on the shoulder, even if they don't know these people personally. And so I started working the book. But what I found was I really enjoyed talking to people and they enjoyed talking to me. And you lost something when you translated it from our discussions into the written product. And you really didn't get the same sense of their personality. So I kind of set the project aside because I didn't think it was really working the way I wanted it to work. And then with the pandemic and podcasts really just coming to the forefront and everybody listening to them, I started thinking, well, if the women judges are willing, this would be great. You know, we could have this conversation that we could share the conversation with everyone and, you know, just kind of go from there. It would feel more like you're sitting down having coffee with this person and getting some mentoring advice. So I said, okay, well, the only way it's going to work is if people agree to do this. So let me just find out if anyone's willing to do it. So I I talked to some brave souls, some friends of mine on the bench, others who were really great lawyers in other arenas and said, are you willing to, you know, try this sight unseen, unheard, you know, to try this out and see how it works. And they were brave and they did it. And then what happened was magical, which was that once they started, like I'd have the interview like we're having right now. And that night or the next day, I would get an email from them saying, you know, you really need to talk to my friend so-and-so, or you really need to talk to this judge about her story. It's a really great story. And so before the podcast even aired, I had guests recommending other guests. And so I originally thought it was going to be like a 15, 16 episode. And, you know, I'd be done and we could do maybe a second season sometime down the line. But no, 
it started growing before it even aired. And that's how it's been from the beginning. And the reason there are so many episodes is because so many people came to me and wanted to do it. I felt it was not fair to say, I'm going to interview you in January of 2022 or whatever it is. And by September, your interview will air. You know, that's just not right. So I was like, we need to produce more because we're doing more interviews. They need to come out. So the pace and all of that just literally came from the guests. That's an incredible story. And it's a wonderful podcast. Yeah, my goal is to, you know, inspire women lawyers, law students, women in high school even to consider the law because there's such a wide variety of things you can do with a law degree and so many ways that women are leading in those positions. So it's just expanded from there. We did a program with Girls Inc., which I'm really, really proud of with their 11th graders. We did a live podcast panel with a number of women judges and lawyers. And then we recorded that for the podcast. So the 100 girls in the room got to have individual interactions with the judges and lawyers who were there. And then we got to really expand the reach of Girls Inc. beyond their, you know, local cohort by recording it and now having, you know, thousands of girls being able to listen to that. What an incredible endeavor. Congratulations to you on your success and continued success with the Porsche Project. And MC, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Bob. It was a lot of fun. That's our show. Check out the show notes for more information on today's case. Also, if you were involved in an interesting civil case or know about one that you think would be a good topic for the show, reach out to me at rstetson at bernkoflegal.com. That's rstetson at b-e-r-n-k-o-p-f legal.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to this podcast and leave us a positive review. Follow us on Instagram at Legal Judgments on Twitter at legal underscore judgments and on LinkedIn at Legal Judgments Podcast. And don't forget that E in judgments.